We'll be continuing in the book of 2 Corinthians today. So if you'd open there to chapter 2, we will uh, be reading the chapter. We're picking up the story of chapter 1, which really doesn't finish until verse 4, but it rolls right into the the following part concerning the matter of church discipline and one of the things that had gotten people so excised against Paul and had caused some of the trouble and was behind the reason why he hadn't shown up when he had originally planned to, but waited. And so we'll be picking up that story from last week. Paul hadn't visited as he planned, so they were attacking his character in the gospel. Uh, We talked about how scholastics often sought to lower the opinion of their rivals so that they would appear higher, because in Greek and Roman philosophy, you, you follow the most superior person, and they wanted Paul to appear inferior to them and Paul's gospel to be inferior so that their teaching would be followed and they would be followed. It's a common problem in man's thinking that they want to be the greatest, and they, they want to be the greatest teacher, they have the greatest beliefs, and so they, they want to find a way to make that happen, and they do that often by trying to crush others. It's also one of their beliefs that you need to follow the most superior teacher, because then you'll have the most superior knowledge yourself, and you'll be superior. I follow so-and-so, and I follow, that wasn't that First Corinthians. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. You know, that, that kind of spirit goes back to man's basic sinful corruption, but also to the Greek and Roman philosophy that you are the one you follow. Of course, Jesus said a disciple is not above his teacher, but anyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. So they weren't really wrong completely in that thinking. They had a number of flaws about it. Their premise, as we see in the first chapter, was that, do you want to have a life like Paul has? Being hated and despised and persecuted and driven from place to place, living in poverty and suffering. Do you want to be a man like Paul, who has to live a humble life and be humble? Is that really what you want? Because that's what's going to happen if you follow Paul. Wouldn't it be better to have a life like ours? Now, these scholastics, though, I think they were the natural men Paul is speaking of in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He said, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Their rejection of Paul's life and Paul's teaching was because they couldn't understand what Paul was talking about. It was nonsense to them. It was foolishness. They could not understand the value of being like Paul. And they couldn't understand what Paul had written. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his first letter, chapter 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The goal wasn't for them to become like Paul, as Paul's disciples. Their goal should be to become like Christ, whom they could see in Paul as their teacher, because Paul was becoming like Christ. They couldn't understand the idea of putting off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and being renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Their purpose 
was not to become like their teacher, Paul. Their purpose was to become like Christ, to have true godliness, true holiness. And Paul, as their teacher, was teaching not himself in his wisdom, but God's wisdom and calling them to Christ. But they wouldn't be able to understand that because it would be spiritually discerned. And so they needed to be born again into the likeness of Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. He writes to them in 2 Corinthians 5.17. So they despised Paul and they didn't understand what he was calling people to do and wanted people to follow them because they were better in their minds. Of course, they also would have despised the Lord himself as they did Paul. Paul was the disciple of the Lord who life and ministry looked very much like the Lord's. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Luke 9, 23-26. They wanted something very different as natural men than what Christ was offering. Natural man wants to live for himself. He says, live your best life now. But Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. So Paul is living the life of God, a godly life, a holy life, taking up his cross daily and following Christ, and they've been mocking him and deriding him and trying to degrade him for that so that they can be glorified and be the ones who get the respect, the ones who get the honor, the ones who are ahead. And that forces Paul to justify his actions and the gospel, to, his, to his enemies and to his, the gospel's enemies. So he's saying he didn't sin in not coming, but he was acting in their best interests. And that's really where we're going to pick it up here in chapter 2. So why don't we read chapter 2? So he's just explained to them that he had reasons for not coming. And he made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad? But the one whom I have pained. And I wrote as I did so that when I come, when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction, in anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. 
Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have anything to forgive, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though the door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leaves us in triumphal possession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one we are the fragrance of death to death, and to the other the fragrance of life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we consider the difficult topic on which Paul had written them, a matter of discipline within the church and doing what is right before you and maintaining the purity of the church, We ask, Lord, for your grace that we might take these things into heart, might understand them, might live them in our lives, might be encouraged, even though it's hard, when we see right being done in this matter. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So he starts off, we start off this chapter seeing Paul's heart in this matter of the case of discipline. We discussed it last time, but mostly it was for their benefit and their blessing that he had put off his visit to them. Now, we need to think a little bit about what it was really happening, because it's quite confusing if you don't have a play-by-play. He meant here, he did this, he did this, he sent this person and that person and wrote this letter and that letter. So Paul had written 1 Corinthians when he was in Ephesus and had sent Timothy to visit the church. We know that from 1 Corinthians 4.17. Paul was not sure the letter had produced a good reaction. Perhaps Timothy had brought back a negative report. If he's calling, as we see in 1 Corinthians, for discipline and rebuking the church for its failure to do it, and rebuking them quite firmly, it may have been very ill-received. We talked about it last week that They may have not liked it all being called to discipline. They may have called him lording it over them and being a a monster and hating people and wanting to hurt people, which is the way church discipline is often portrayed. And maybe they got such a negative report through Timothy. Paul had paid a quick visit to them. We read about that in 2 Corinthians 12, 14, and 13, 1 through 2. Even so, he was still concerned. So he sent Titus to Corinth to encourage them and to bring back word about their spiritual condition. And he was so concerned about hearing from Titus that he left Ephesus, went to Troas, and then on to Macedonia, giving up the ministry opportunity because he wanted to find out what was going on in Corinth. It's not enough to just go and evangelize and teach from place to place. He really had a burden for those people, for their souls, for their growth, for their faith, and he wasn't abandoning them. 
I remember sharing a while back about a missionary I knew in Africa who talked about converting an entire village. And I asked him if he ever went back. And he said, well, I went back there like a year later, and they were sacrificing a chicken to Jesus. I'm like, you know, you're not just, you need to care for their care the whole way, more than evangelizing 20 different places and having them all worshiping idols because you didn't finish. You got to finish the job. And Paul was very concerned about Corinth. They weren't stable yet. They weren't ready. And he was very anxious about what was happening. So he sent Titus, and then he went looking for Titus to find out what happened. Finally, he met Titus in Macedonia and got a good report for them that filled them with joy, as we'll see throughout 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 8, chapter 13 and following. We see that reaction. So in order to get ready for his third visit, which he wanted to do, and expedite the collection for Jerusalem that they had offered to do, he was going to send Titus and two other brothers back to Corinth ahead of himself, and they were given Second Corinthians to carry with them. Now, some suppose a third letter, written in between maybe First and Second Corinthians, based on verse 3 here that talks about um, the severity that he wrote them with, uh, I don't think there's another letter there. There is another letter mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5.9 about he had written to them previously about sexual immorality. And I think 1 Corinthians 5 is probably what Paul is referring to here that may have caused all of the trouble because he's calling on them to do the most difficult thing there is for churches to do, to exercise discipline within the body and go to the point of putting somebody out of fellowship because of sin. If you think about most churches, there are a lot of people who are either friends or more likely relations. In fact, I've been in churches where 20 or 30 people are related to each other in their extended family. And if you were to discipline one person, what's going to happen? You know, you're up against all 20 of them, all 30 of them, potentially. It can be quite devastating on a church. And so this was a really huge deal. And I don't think we can overlook what we see there in 1 Corinthians 5. And in fact, if we try and make him talking about something we don't know what the sin is and we don't know what the details are, then there's no point in what he's saying. If we know what they are, then we can understand what he's talking about. And so I think God really gave us the details. And I think 1 Corinthians 5, where many people see it, is where it is. So I want to read chapter 5. Chapter 5 would be worthy of a whole series of sermons on its own. There's a lot of rich theology in there, a lot of important things for the church. But I want to just read through it so we have a background of what we're talking about, because I think this is what it's all about. And if you think about this happening in your own in a church in the past with one of the families in your church, and it, it can be quite serious. So, First Corinthians chapter five, if you want to follow along, it is actually reported that it, there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. 
and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. They seem to have been proud about this sin not perhaps understanding the seriousness of it. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he's very concerned about the purity of the church. Allowing one sin to go on and not be dealt with is like allowing a little bit of leaven into the bread. It changes the whole lump. I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now this is 1 Corinthians, so this would be a letter before that. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those outside is it is not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Very firm and very harsh, and if followed, could result in a lot of trouble for Paul and for the church. As I said, it's worthy of a series of sermons if we are preaching through first Corinthians, but we're doing second Corinthians. So I won't do that, but I want to make two two points that I want us to remember from this to understand the context of this first two chapters of 2 Corinthians. First was, there was a sinner, or a pair of sinners, if you want to include the wife. The sin is clear in Scripture. Leviticus, in particular, speaks of this often, but also Deuteronomy. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, for it is your father's nakedness, Leviticus 18.8. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. The blood is upon them, Leviticus 20.11. A man shall not take his father's wife. Take here is the same word used for marry. Take as a wife. So that he does not uncover his father's nakedness, Deuteronomy 20.30. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness. And all the people shall say, Amen. Deuteronomy 27.20 This isn't the ceremonial law. This is the moral law. This is a moral issue. And the moral law under the general heading of sexual immorality. And according to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5.1, It's something not even the pagans would tolerate. 
marrying your father's wife. Uh, since adultery isn't mentioned, we can probably assume the father is not currently married and probably not even alive. Jesus said that if you, anyone divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, he makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So it would be called adultery here as well, I think, if she was divorced. And since Paul says father's wife and not mother, we can assume that she's not his biological mother. She could even have been his own age. But this was a clear sin in Scripture, and even the pagans understood that it was a clear sin, which made the church look bad. Second note, the church failed to discipline the offender for a notorious public sin. But more than that, you mentioned boasting. They were celebrating the sin as if he had done something good. And that's kind of shocking. They didn't discipline, and that is something Paul denounced rather forcefully. And he calls on them to mourn. He condemned their church because they failed to purge the evil from amongst them. 1 Corinthians 5.13 Church discipline is not an optional matter. The church's purity is very important, and God will judge the church for failure to do that. And Paul doesn't want them to be judged, so he's written them to encourage them to exercise discipline. That is for your own good. An an impure church, a church that doesn't discipline its members, is not a church. It becomes no different than the world. Paul later writes them, I feel a divine jealousy for you, but since I betrothed you to one husband to prevent your pure virgin to Christ, 2 Corinthians 11.2. Note that link between the sins. Sexual immorality, being unfaithful in marriage, is likened to being unfaithful to God. Uh, It's the relationship that we can understand. And when we're not doing what God has said, it's like we're committing adultery. That's what he wants us to understand. And so we really need to think about that. By failing to discipline, they were failing to be faithful to God. So he's writing them a letter and causing them a lot of sorrow. But he says that also was for their own good because it would reconcile the church with God. Primarily, uh, the church is now in rebellion, essentially, against God. God has made it clear this is a sin. You have a member who's doing it, and rather than censoring, rebuking, correcting, disciplining, and putting out the member if needed, you're celebrating what they've done as sin. How often do we see that today? I mean, if we think about it, Liberal churches embracing sexual immorality, embracing false religions, and celebrating sin. It's a very dangerous road to start walking down a little bit. And so his rebuke is quite firm. He's writing them and causing them a lot of sorrow because he doesn't want them to suffer for their sin. In writing them instead of visiting them, He's doing it for their peace of mind and for his. We see as we read those first four verses of the chapter that Paul is very concerned about 
their sorrow and their pain that this matter is causing them and his desire to be able to meet with them in joy. If he came to them, it would be coming to them dealing with the discipline issue and their failure and rebuking them for it and forcing them to do what was right, whether they wanted to or not. And that would be no good to him and no good to them. So he put off his visit. He says this is done out of his abundant love for them in verse 4. Some, especially Paul's adversary, might challenge him. How is inflicting pain and sorrow on the church and humiliating this couple, you know, showing love? That's the way the world views it. Many today continue to reject this biblical truth. But in reality, if they don't deal with this sin, the church isn't going to be able to grow. The church isn't going to be able to be faithful. And this couple is going to be walking in sin and having great trouble and great sorrow. So the world may say, and the people there may have been saying, this is unloving of Paul. But that's because the Bible is at all odds with the world's definition of love. We've talked about this many times. The world insists love is how something or someone makes me feel. Scripture defines love, biblical love, more along the lines of wanting and doing what is best for the person loved. In other words, excuse me, in the world's view, love is very self-centered. What others do for me. On the biblical view, it's selfless, what I do for others. Remember John 3.16, and this will be the only time I probably quote it without going further. God so loved the world, or this is the way God loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son to redeem us from our sins. How did he show his love? By not putting himself forward, by not putting Christ first, but by putting the needs of God's people first. And we needed somebody to pay for our sins. That's the love that we're talking about, and that's the love really we see here. Paul is showing them love by encouraging them to turn from their sins, and he is encouraging them to turn from their sins by a fierce rebuke for their sin. Church discipline is like that. You're convicting them of sin, you're rebuking them for sin, you're even condemning them for their sin in the hopes of bringing about repentance, bringing about reconciliation, bringing restoration. And that's really what it's all about. True love for a sinner is to see them restored to their relationship with God and their relationship with the people they've sinned against. But let's face it, it's painful, it brings sorrow, but it's what God has commanded, and it really is what's loving for them. And we've discussed that before. Do you help the child in their sin, or do you turn them from their sin? If you help them in their sin, you're just shoving them on their way to the broad road to destruction, to hell. But if you rebuke them from their sin and consequence them for their sin and encourage them to turn from their sin, they may be saved. God is the one who saves, but and if they are a believer and they've sinned and they haven't turned from it, what happens? Well, their life goes from bad to worse to a disaster as they are separated more and more from God. 
And when they get to heaven, yes, it might be as if, as Paul describes it, as if escaping through fire. When you have nothing, not even the clothes on your back. You have no reward coming other than life. If we correct them of their sin and turn them from their sin, we save them from many sorrows and turn them back on the road to pleasing and glorifying God. So really, it's his sincere love for them that Paul wrote them to discipline the offender, wrote them, really it's called punishment in verse 6, to punish the offender. And the purpose of this was his love for them. And he did it in writing rather than in person. Because if he came in person, who would be doing it? Paul. If he avoided coming until they finished their work, who would be doing it? They would. Uh, we all know that principle. If you're trying to train a child to do something and you do it for them every time, what do they learn? Nothing. Uh, if you stand back and let them do it, even though they mess up and they struggle, they learn. And Paul would have, if they hadn't done it right, Paul would certainly have stepped in with another letter or another visit to do so. And so it was really for their good and out of his love for them that he hadn't visited them yet. So the result of what he wrote them and what they did was to punish the offender. Now, we talked about the offense, sexual immorality, if 1 Corinthians 5 is really what he's talking about. And the punishment in 1 Corinthians 5 was excommunication, verse 2. And that means having nothing to do with the unrepentant sinner. We see that in verse 11. Don't associate with them. Don't eat with them. Don't welcome them. Basically shun them and shame them so that they may see the horror of their sin. It's very much a hated biblical truth, but it is God-breathed. This is what God wants us to do. Now, of course, we read in particularly Matthew 18, you don't have to always go to the end. <coughs> if the person repents first, they can be spared that problem. But if they're unrepentant, we go until they're repentant. Very much, though, this is a painful thing for a church to do and its members. I've spoken about this before. But the liberal churches tend to view God and the church as existing to embrace people, to encourage people, to affirm the people. And they see that as the most important thing in life. What other value does Christianity have than to make people happy and their lives better? But they're doing that from a worldly perspective, not understanding the spiritual side of things. Rejecting God's purpose in creating man, which was to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And not to give us our best life now. So church discipline is often viewed as harsh, brutal, and evil. And I would agree sometimes church discipline used by sinful man, is not perfect. In fact, there's no one in this life perfect but Christ. Churches are not perfect. Leaders are not perfect. Pastors are not perfect. Some of them lord it over others, brutalizing them. They do that to feel better about themselves. And think of the Pharisees and the Pharisee and the tax collector story. 
The Pharisee is like, I'm glad I'm not like that man. And I'm sure he lets those men know when he has the opportunity how much better he is. Self-justification. Often where we go with church discipline, though. We want to punish somebody else so that we feel better about our own sin. My sin isn't so bad that I've been punished like that. Also, sometimes leaders want to glorify themselves by degrading their opponents. That's what was happening to Paul here. They were trying to find faults with Paul, show him to be inferior, show him to be morally inferior, as well as intellectually and wealth-wise inferior. And church discipline can be used that way, where a man wants to raise himself up. Others fail to heed Peter's warning to the elders. In 1 Peter 5, 2 through 4, Peter says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not by compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 1 Peter 5, 2-4. Sometimes people's desire to be the boss, people's desire to be the great one, the leader, the one who has followed, the one who has obeyed. Um, Sometimes people just are so fearful that they need to control everything around them. And they misuse church discipline in that way. They want to glorify themselves and strengthen their position degrade others to feel good about themselves. Uh, All of these things can make church discipline very evil. The fact that sinful man misuses something does not make that thing wrong. Now, this is talking about sexual immorality. Without biblically lawful sex, there would be no human race. It would not exist. Sex isn't evil. The wrong use of it is evil. Church discipline isn't evil, but the wrong use of it is evil. We see a lot of the wrong use in life, but that doesn't make it wrong. It's what God wants, and we just need to do it in a holy manner, carefully guarding ourselves. Done God's way, it has a purpose. That purpose is not to punish, not to remove the person. The purpose is to restore the offender. That's what we see here in our passage today, that he is celebrating. It's enough. It's done. Now it's time to restore them. The purpose was achieved. In Galatians 6, 1 and 2, Paul writes, Brothers, if any of you is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Notice, not domineering, not hypocrisy, but in gentleness. Keeping watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So it's a work of the more spiritual people to be engaged in church discipline, because there are temptations. What are the temptations? Well, the obvious one, to exposure to the sin. We have to think about the sin. We have to deal with the sin. We may have to hear details about the sin and it can drag us into the same sin. I remember once, years ago, seeing a report about the arrest of a bunch of child pornographers. And the story went that the officers had to look through tens of thousands of pictures for looking for the criminal pictures, tens of thousands of pornographic pictures. 
looking for the criminal ones. And I'm like, ah, what poison to those four men's hearts and eyes and minds. But it can happen that when we're dealing with the sin in the church, we have to be careful not to get the gory details that might lead us into temptation, but to deal with it as sin and you know, extract a proper confession and repentance, make sure they understand the sin, but we have to be very careful. And so that's the first danger. When you counsel somebody about sin, we may think about that sin in ways that lead us into temptation. The second temptation is the sins I was talking about earlier, the self-justification, the self-glorification, the domineering. We can be tempted to think better of ourselves than we ought. Instead of saying, there but for the grace of God go I, we say, ha, I'm glad I'm not like that person. And so it's an important work, though. It's called for by God. It's necessary, but it's dangerous to ourselves. And it's danger, the danger to the church is, even if done rightly, people may be quite offended. Uh, more than once, churches have lost members because somebody was disciplined and people didn't think church discipline was loving in concept, not understanding the biblical necessity of it. It's often called unloving because who reject the biblical view of love and embrace the self-centered worldview of love don't see the love in trying to redeem somebody from their sin. You're making them feel the weight and sorrow of their sin. You're making them feel embarrassed or humiliated. You're making the person who's involved in discipline embarrassed and uncomfortable, and therefore they feel it's not love, not loving. But the wages of sin is death. We don't want to see people die. We don't want to see them go to hell. We don't want to see them under the discipline of God. We want to see them redeemed, and so we have to live in that hope of correcting them and turning them from their sin. Paul writes to Timothy concerning the matter of dealing with sin. In 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. And this is one of those verses that really changed my life because I wasn't the kind and gentle and loving person that you see today. Although some might disagree that I'm kind, gentle, and loving today, but so be it. He writes to Timothy, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, this is primarily talking about false teachers, but people who believe that their sin is okay and they're not willing to repent of it, I, I would lump in with this, where you must you have a gently correcting the opponents, Yes, you have to maintain the peace and purity of the church, and that may require putting out the opponent at some point. But no, with not being quarrelsome, but being patient, enduring, those are all things that are required. Done right, what's the result? Well, I think we see it here in verse 6. The punishment of the majority is enough. I take this to mean that the punishment had, had achieved its purpose. They had rebuked and disciplined the church member. It's one of the most hard, most difficult, most painful things pastors and sessions ever have to do. And you really, you can see this in verse 4 of our text today. He says, I wrote, 
out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears. Now, the hardest thing I ever had to do was rebuke a church member publicly for a public sin on the floor of the church. And I understand exactly what he said. There were tears. There was anguish of heart. There was affliction. There was fear. You know, could this be the end of my ministry amongst them? Will they throw me out? Because this person is a leader in the church, unofficial leader in the church. Paul says of his many trials in chapter 11, he finishes this section with, and apart from all these other things, the beatings and the floggings and the hardships, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Paul thought of the people in the church as his own children. He said, for you have, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me, 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 16. You know, Paul was greatly burdened for them, and this was a difficult and unpleasant thing to have to do, but he'd done it. And the result was the church was repentant of its sin, the sin of not exercising discipline. We read the passage in or we spoke of Paul or Titus's visit and Paul looking for him, but this is what he writes in Second Timothy seven, five through nine. So when we came into our Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without f- and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. And so I rejoiced still even more. For even as I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see the letter grieved you, but only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, and you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. So they had repented on his, based on his letter. His letter was firm, his letter was bold, his letter was rebuking them. How can you be celebrating and boast about this when it's such a disgusting evil that even the pagans won't allow it? What are you thinking? And the response was they were grieved, they were sorrowed, and they repented. And the church showed its faithfulness to God. We see him mention that in verse 9, which we'll hopefully get to next week. But we felt that we had, oh, wrong chapter. For this is why I wrote to you, that I might test you to know whether you'd be obedient in everything. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one doing the wrong, 2 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16, not for the sake of the one who suffered wrong, but in order for your earnestness to us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. 
Remember, Titus had visited them and probably also brought back an unfortunate report that things weren't going well. And then he was encouraged with his visit that they had repented, that they had you know, been joyful that Paul's love for them had brought them to that knowledge and understanding. And so Titus' spirit was refreshed by what they had done. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. So he's sending Titus off to find out what's going in this, on in this church. Titus has probably read the letter, knows the details of the problem. You know, are they going to stone me? Is probably what he was thinking as he went. And Paul said, no, but don't worry. These, they're godly people. They will turn from their sin and, and embrace God and do what is right before God. And so he, Paul says, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad that I boast about you, that I was not put to shame. But just as in everything we said to you is true, so our boasting to Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. So in spite of having visited them before and knowing the problem, they received him well and he was encouraged because of this repentance. And while he mentions that he wasn't writing this really about the sinner, but we see probably that the sinner also was repentant, and we'll look at that more next week. Now, church discipline is a means to bring people to greater knowledge of God and to greater holiness of life and greater blessings from God. Because when we sin and we are stuck in our sin, even if we are a believer, we are still going down that kind of spiral of Romans 1. We are being rebuked by God. We are being punished, not punished, but disciplined by God. The Spirit of God is withdrawing from us, and our life gets worse and worse until we repent. And then God can restore us, and the church can restore us. And so if we don't do discipline, just as the Bible says, if you don't discipline your child, you hate them. If the church does not discipline its members, it's despising them, it's hating them. And that's a terrible thing. So even though it's one of the hardest things a church will ever do, it's of great importance and value to God's people. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray that we're never in a situation like the Corinthians are in, never in a situation like Paul was in, that there is no need for discipline beyond a mild rebuke and admonition. But if there is, Lord, we pray that we would have the courage to do what is right, that no matter what it takes, May we turn the sinner from his ways and cover that multitude of sins and see them restored to you and restored to joy and restored to the church. So we ask that you would give us wisdom and courage in this matter in Jesus' name. Amen.